Gracious Heavenly Father, you have promised to be with your church, watching over us, protecting us, providing all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you know our past and understand it completely, that you know our needs and are able to meet them adequately, that you know our destiny and are able to prepare us for it perfectly. Will you come to us now and speak to us by your Spirit through your Word, that each of us may be conscious that we're listening to the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, calling us now to follow him into the future. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Uh, Jan Hus was condemned to death in 1415 at the Council of Constance. Um, He was condemned to death for preaching the gospel and for pointing out a few home truths to the church of his day. Uh, Before he was executed, he was publicly humiliated. Six bishops stripped off his priestly vestments. Uh, These bishops, of course, were the highest authorities in the church of his day. Uh, They put a cap on his head covered with pictures of red demons and they committed Jan Hus's soul to the devil. But Jan Hus responded, and I commit myself to my gracious Lord Jesus. You see, Jan Hus knew who had him safe. Uh, When he was burned at the stake on July the 6th, he died with supreme courage, uh, refusing a last-minute pardon if he would only abandon his beliefs. Instead, he said, I will die with joy today in the faith of the gospel which I have preached. What makes men like that? Well, it's people who know the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1. Not just a Jesus that they heard about second hand. No, it's people who've responded and trusted personally in Jesus as he really is today and who know that he is their Lord now and forever. And our passage this morning is, I think, one of the most remarkable descriptions of the living Lord Jesus in the entire Bible. So what can we learn? Well, we're going to start with God's man. His name is John. We've mentioned him before. But please notice as the passage begins that this is a personal testimony from John. Just notice this in the text. Verse 10 On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, says John. I heard behind me a loud voice. Verse 12, I turned round. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet. He's talking about something as real and as concrete as you telling me what you did yesterday. It's as real as that. So a real man is speaking here. It's the same John who wrote the fourth gospel and three of the New Testament letters. So he began his life as an ordinary fisherman 
and was chosen by Jesus to be one of the twelve apostles. But by this time, John is a very old man indeed. In fact, he is the last surviving apostle, but a real man. And he's in a real place, Patmos, an island off the west coast of Turkey. In those days, Patmos was a penal colony. It was the place where Romans sent enemies of the state. A bit like Robin Island, I suppose. And there's something deeply ironic about this because the reason that the Romans sent John to Patmos was to shut him up. Uh, In the days before uh, email and WhatsApp, to be on Patmos was to be totally cut off. So the Romans put him there to shut him up. But it was there on that island that God gave John something to say that you and I are reading about and talking about 2,000 years later. Isn't that remarkable? Because, of course, when God wants to speak, he will. So here's a real man in a real place on a real day. Verse 10. Verse 10 says all of this happened on the Lord's Day which was the day that the New Testament church in the book of Acts began to meet. Uh, It was Resurrection Day, what we call Sunday, the first day of the week. And John says that on the Lord's Day he was in the Spirit. Now that phrase crops up a number of times in the book of Revelation and it, it introduces a number of the astonishing visions that we're going to get to eventually. But uh, it doesn't simply refer to people receiving special revelation from God. Now, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, as just one example, says that we are to pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Now, that is a command to you, and it is a command to me to pray in the Spirit on all occasions. It's talking about ordinary Christians being in communion with the living God. And it was on the Lord's Day that John set his heart and mind on God. Do you do that? Do you do that? Do you give time and place to God in your life on the Lord's Day? Do you set aside time on the Lord's Day to commune with God? Of course, you're here in church, I'm delighted about that. And that's one way to set aside time for God, but but there's more to this phrase than that. Because, you see, you can be in church on the Lord's Day, but not be in the Spirit. You can be not fixing your mind and your heart on God, not being earnest in your soul with him. And that, of course, is what Sing a New Song Tonight and the Family Worship Project are all about. Friends, can I earnestly encourage you to make sure that on the Lord's Day, you are in the Spirit. Because it was to such a man, to a real man, who was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, that God spoke. God's man. Secondly, God's voice. Uh, In verse 10, John says, I heard behind me 
a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see. A loud voice like a trumpet. Now there's a very strong association in scripture between the sound of a trumpet and the presence of God. In Exodus, you remember God came down on Mount Sinai to bring the law to Moses and to Israel. It was a terrifying spectacle if you read about it. The ground shook and smoke came down on the mountain top and in the midst of it all there was the loud blast of a trumpet signifying the presence of Almighty God. And so you see when John hears that voice on Patmos sounding like a trumpet it's obviously no ordinary human voice, is it? There was something overwhelming about it. So John heard this voice, but you see, as far as you and I are concerned here this morning, it wasn't just a heard voice. The voices that you and I hear are important, but but if you think about it, they are unique to that moment, aren't they? Because when the person stops speaking, you can't hear the voice anymore. But notice the first command the voice gives in verse 11. Can you see it? Write what you see and send it to the seven churches. And the command is then repeated again in verse 19. Write, therefore, what you have seen. And when something's repeated in Scripture, it's always important. And the point is that the word that John hears is a real word from God breaking into time, breaking into human history, but a written word becomes a permanent record, doesn't it? And the result is that the voice that John heard speaks to us today. And so as you and I read this book and study this book together, we can benefit from the voice that John heard and what it was saying. God's man, God's voice. Thirdly, God's church. Now can I say that the church in the first century was not very impressive? Um, We're coming to that time of year, aren't we? It's a strange time of year when the the magazines and the newspapers uh, publish surveys telling us what's going to happen in 2019. Now they've spoken to all the important people Uh, They've asked them about all the big issues, the issues that really matter. And then they write, don't they, at some length about the way that those issues are going to impact your life and mine next year. Well, at the end of the first century, nobody was writing about the churches. Political leaders, writers, uh, public speakers weren't in the least bit interested in the churches. If they noticed them at all, the churches were either an irritation or a bit of a joke. Now that was the situation then, and of course that is, isn't it, how many people think about church today. And sometimes we ourselves come to church on Sunday feeling really rather irrelevant as as far as the wider world is concerned. Uh, You know, we've asked our friends 
to come to church and when we do they, they look at us as if we're really rather sad, a bit simple. And yet this passage is telling us something supremely important. Because it tells us that the most important thing that God is doing on earth now is church. And you and I, you see, you've got to discipline ourselves not to buy into what the culture says about church. No, we've got to discipline ourselves to open our Bibles and see what God says about it. Because at the end of the day, quite frankly, his is the only opinion that counts. And God says that in the midst of everything else that's happening in the world, the church is what really matters. And, uh, of course, when you discover what really matters, you invest your life in it, don't you? I hope you do. Now, there's something here for the churches, and there's someone here among the churches. Very interesting. Uh, The vision that John had, you see, wasn't just to give him a bit of a boost while he was having a rough time on Patmos. No, the vision here is primarily for the churches, not for John at all. And that's why in verse 11, the voice, have a look at it, the voice says, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then those churches are named. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So, you see, we're talking here about real local churches. And you see, for the first readers of this book, this conjured up places and people that they knew. And the whole book is for them, promising real spiritual blessings for real people in real churches. Now, in case you weren't with us last week, let me just remind you that God selected seven of those churches in this book because the number seven signifies completion or fullness. So the message that God had for those seven real churches then is also for you and me this morning. That's why John had to write it down. So you and I can hear what God is saying to us today. But then there's also something very special here among the churches. Verse 12. John says in verse 12, I turned round to see the voice. Now that's a strange phrase, isn't it? Because you don't see voices. You hear them. But the point is, you see, having heard the voice, John wants to see where it's coming from. He wants to see the speaker. But I find it really interesting that the first thing that John sees is not the speaker, but where the speaker was. Verse 12, I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned... I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone. So the first thing that John sees is seven 
golden lampstands. And of course we don't have to guess what the lampstands signify. Why not? Because Jesus tells us in verse 20. Look at the last phrase in verse 20. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the lampstands are symbols of churches. Now think about that. I think it's a really appropriate symbol. Because the lampstand gives light, doesn't it? And you remember that the Lord Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, he says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. So it's a symbol of the church, a golden lampstand, golden, precious, valuable. And it's there to shine light out into the darkness. And where is the speaker with a voice like a trumpet, a voice that signifies the presence of God? Where would you expect God to be? And uh, you'll chat about this with your friend and he'll say, well, he's obviously not here. Um, I mean, look at the world. It's in the most terrible mess. God's in heaven, isn't he? And uh, as you read on through the book of Revelation, uh, and your friend might have done that, he might say, well, God is on the throne of heaven and there's plenty of that in this book. But that's not where John first saw him. John first saw him among the lampstands. Real local churches with real people very much like us in this building this morning. A cross-section of adults and children, young Christians, older Christians, people who are related, people who are not related, um, the healthy, the sick, the rich, the poor. That's where Christ was among the lampstands. It's actually one of the most important statements in the entire book. You see, there may be plenty of flaws in the local church. There always are. But as long as we are shining the light of God's truth out into the darkness by word and witness, Jesus is with us. And this side of heaven, my dear friends... There is no greater blessing than that. So we started with God's man, God's voice, God's church, but actually we haven't yet got to the focus of this magnificent passage, which is, of course, God's person. The focus is on the person John sees among the churches. And it's one of the most awesome descriptions of the majesty of the Lord Jesus in the entire Bible. And it's given to you and me so that we might fix our eyes on the place where John fixed his eyes that day. There's a text, isn't there, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2, which says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Where have you been fixing your eyes this week? Hmm? See, our eyes can so easily get fixed on other things, can't they? 
Um, We can fix our eyes on our problems, on our marriages, on our finances, on our careers, on television. But the Bible says, and it's a command, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And this passage is very special because, you see, we're not here fixing our eyes on the Jesus that we read about in the Gospels. This is not the carpenter of Nazareth that we're looking at here, is it? No, you and I here are fixing our eyes on Jesus as he is this morning. This is Jesus in his risen and eternal glory as he is now. And my dear friends, can I say that there is nobody here this morning who does not need to see Jesus more clearly. It's our greatest need. Because you see, all of our sin and all of our personal failures in Christian discipleship come from the fact that we don't yet see Jesus as we should. Leon Morris puts it rather well. He says, it is only as Christ is seen for what he really is that anything else can be seen for what it really is. So it's not just a matter of seeing Jesus in addition to the other things that occupy your mind and mine, Monday to Friday. No, it's seeing Jesus for who he really is so that at last you can begin to see the whole world as it really is. So, friends, let's see Jesus in our text. And there are four propositions. Number one, he is the eternal one. And you'll find that in verse 13. Among the lampstands was someone Like a son of man, notice the quotation marks there, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Someone like a son of man. Now remember, it's pretty obvious I suppose, but remember that the book of Revelation comes right at the very end of our Bibles. And uh, it's soaked in uh, Bible images from what's gone before. And the reason that phrase, like a son of man, is in inverted commas, is because it is a direct translation of the Hebrew in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I'd like you to turn there with me now, if you would, please. Page 622, Daniel 7, verse 13. Well, we'll start, we'll pick it up a bit earlier, actually. Verse 9, I think. Page 622. Now, as you're turning there, let me tell you that uh, this is a vision that God gave Daniel revealing what will happen on the day of judgment. We're going to start from verse 9. And uh, let me say, it's talking about the future, but it's written in the past tense. The Bible sometimes does this. Because it's saying that although it's in the future, it's as good as done. This is absolutely certain. Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, 
thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. (coughs) Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Come with me to verse 13. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, at one level, that phrase, like one like a son of man, is, is just a Jewish way of talking about a human being. Um, so the character in Daniel's vision, in one sense, is just a man. But unlike any other man, he's given divine honour. He's given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worship him. Now here's the point. The point is that the person that John saw amongst the golden lampstands is the same person that Daniel saw six hundred years before. And of course the The phrase Son of Man was the phrase that the Lord Jesus used to refer to himself. 31 times in Matthew's Gospel, 15 times in Mark, 25 times in Luke, 13 times in John, 84 times in the New Testament, Jesus is the Son of Man. Now you and I, when we hear that phrase, of course, we tend to think, don't we, of the baby at Bethlehem, the teacher in Galilee, uh, crucified in Jerusalem, risen in glory. But you see, this phrase is taking us even further back, isn't it? To the one that Daniel saw 600 years before. When God gave Daniel a vision of the future, a vision of the day of judgment. So the Son of Man is somebody who stands over time as you and I experience it. He is the Eternal One. We'll come back to Revelation 1 because secondly, Jesus is the Divine One. Almost every phrase in the passage uses language which the Old Testament uses for God. Consider, for example, God's purity. And look at the appearance of the Son of Man that we've got here. Uh, Verse 13. 
dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Now, he's dressed exactly like the high priest in the Old Testament, the one who represented the people before Almighty God. But we've just heard, haven't we, in Daniel chapter 7, that the Ancient of Days that Daniel saw, his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was white as wool. It's the same language being used of God the Father. And that's the language that John is using to describe the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. But there's more here. There is the all-seeing gaze of Jesus at the end of verse 14. John says at the end of verse 14 that his eyes were like blazing fire. Now in our first Bible reading this morning from Daniel chapter 10, Daniel said that the eyes of God were like flaming torches. What's that telling us? What's that all about? Well, it's saying that he has eyes that pierce and penetrate. We sometimes, don't we, talk about someone being able to see through us. It's a rather uncomfortable feeling, isn't it? Uh, Perhaps there's something we've done we don't want them to know about, but they see right through you and you feel exposed, don't you? My dear friend, before Jesus, you are exposed. Because Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If you want to be frightened of something in this life, Be frightened of God's eyes. Blazing fire. The eyes of Jesus. He sees everything. And then here there's also his power and authority. Another description of his voice in verse 15. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Now again, that's another Old Testament allusion to the book of Ezekiel, you don't need to turn to it, but in Ezekiel 43 verse verse 2, Ezekiel had a vision. And he says, I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters and the land was radiant with his glory. Have you ever seen a huge waterfall? I mean, a real huge waterfall. Waterfall, Big Falls, Niagara. If you have, you'll know that there are two things you can never forget from the experience. The first is the the immense roar. You know, before you see the waterfall, you can hear it. In fact, within a certain radius, you can't actually hear anything else. 
And secondly, that the sheer power of the water carrying everything forward towards the fall. It's, the power is frightening because it's irresistible. Well, friends, the voice of Jesus is like that. And look at his hands in verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. The stars signify the the leadership or, or the essence of each of the seven churches, which, of course, as I've said, represent all of the churches throughout the ages. And the Lord Jesus can hold all of them in one hand. And of course, if you're in the hand of Jesus, you are absolutely secure. Totally secure in the grip of Jesus. We need to be reminded of that. And look at his mouth, verse 16. Out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. Double-edged sword was the basic equipment of a Roman soldier. And for that reason, it came to symbolise the power of the Roman Empire, which at that time was the greatest empire in the world. But Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword. Eventually we're going to get to Revelation 19, but you might not be here. Um, When we get there, you'll find that at the end of time, um, there are two armies facing each other in battle. Uh, The armies of Jesus and his enemies. But the interesting thing is that the armies of the Lord Jesus don't go out into the battle with spears and submachine guns and weapons of war that you and I might expect. Revelation 19 says that Jesus actually destroys his enemies by the sword of his word. I find it really interesting, you know, that um, in the book of Genesis, at the beginning of time, it is the word of God that brings everything in the universe into existence, isn't it? And at the very end of the Bible... It is the words of Jesus that prevail over his enemies. We would do well to tremble before the words of Jesus. You know, he's graciously given us his powerful life-giving word. But some people say, this is boring, Uh, this is difficult, you know, Simon, this is not really relevant to my week. What nonsense. Dear friends, don't pass verdicts on what Jesus says. Because one day, it is his voice that will raise you from the grave and reconstitute you in an instant. We would do well to tremble before his word. And Jesus, you know, loves people who say, look, I may not understand all this, but because Jesus says it, I'll do it anyway. And look at his face, verse 16. Can we all see verse 16 in our Bibles? 
His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Now think about that. See, the face sums up a person, doesn't it? Um, You know, if I say to you, have you seen Mariano this morning? If you haven't seen his face, you haven't really seen him, have you? Do you know what I mean? But, But if you have seen his face, well, you know you really have seen him. And here, the face of Jesus is like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Again, think about the imagery there. You see, human eyes can't look at the sun, can you, on, on a clear day? It's too bright to look at. If you try and look at it, it's going to damage your eyes. How much less can human eyes cope with the fullness of the majesty and holiness of the face of Jesus. Do you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, we're told that the face of Jesus there was shining like the sun, and the disciples were there. Exactly the same thing that we've got here. And what I want you to take away from this is that this is the person you will face on the last day. You will have to answer to him and he will deal with you. He's the divine one. But notice also in this text, he's the gracious one. This is really important. Verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I wonder if you realise how unexpected that is. You see, this is John. And in the fourth gospel, he is described, he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Do you remember that night, uh, the Last Supper? Where's John? He's sitting next to Jesus and he's leaning back on his chest. But when John sees Jesus in heaven, he doesn't just leap up and run towards him and say, Oh, how absolutely marvellous, let's go fishing. Does he? John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Because no human being, no human being, can stand before the full glory of Jesus Christ. Isaiah couldn't, Ezekiel couldn't, Daniel couldn't, John couldn't. You and I can't. But what happens next? Verse 17, Then Jesus placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. It's very beautiful that, isn't it? I think it's one of the most beautiful pictures in the entire Bible. You know, Jesus doesn't send an ambassador. He doesn't send an angel. He himself reaches down to John. Now think about it. If you're standing upright and uh, there's somebody lying down, well, you can kick them, can't you? You can kick them. But you can't actually touch them with your hand unless you stoop. 
And this awesome figure who upholds the entire universe with his hand stoops to touch a real man on real ground with real grace. He touches him. It's the hand that touched lepers in the Gospels. It's the hand with the nail prints. This is Jesus. He stoops. He stoops to hear you. He stoops despite every reason not to. And we've given him plenty. He stoops to the most unlikely person who says, Lord, I've made a complete mess of my life. Forgive me, won't you receive me? He stoops to you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's a lovely word of assurance, isn't it? It's what Jesus said to the women uh, after the resurrection. Don't be afraid. Very gracious. And Jesus is still that gracious this morning. His heart is warm to everyone who falls before him. He's the eternal one. He's the divine one. The gracious one. And lastly, he's the ruling one. Notice this. He rules over death. Nobody else does. Nobody else does. Verse 17. Don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. No one, Christian or not, can ignore this. Death is coming. You know, we can't escape it. It's creeping up on on all of us. The wages of sin is death. We have all sinned. We will all die unless Jesus comes first. No escape. But Jesus rules over death. And when he talks about death, he's talking from personal experience, isn't he? Because he's been there and he's come back. And it's not just that death could not hold him. Because in verse 18 he says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, if he's, if he's got the keys... Well, then he can unlock the door, can't he, for other people, for you and for me. In fact, Jesus has the authority to empty every single grave. Jesus rules over death. He also rules over the future. I think this is tremendously comforting, verse 19. One commentator says verse 19 is the key to the whole book. I don't know whether that's right or not. It's a bit of a big claim. But it's certainly important. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. No one else can tell you for certain what will take place later. Only Jesus. The future is uncertain to us. For most of us, I think it's a little bit 
frightening, is that right? But Jesus says, I already rule it. I already rule it. And this book assures us that God's kingdom is the only thing, the only kingdom, the only power that will prevail. And of course, lastly, Jesus rules over us. Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's all about the churches. And Jesus is saying, you know, whatever storms may come, I've got you safe. There's some debate amongst the scholars about the meaning of the stars. We've got the lampstands buttoned down, because Jesus has told us. But there is some discussion about the, the meaning of the stars. Uh, do they represent um, a literal angel attached to each church? Uh, there is a reasonably good argument for that. Um, other people say that the stars are, is a re- reference to the leader or the leaders in each individual church, the pastor maybe. Um, Other people say it's talking about the the essence or the spirit of the church, and St Barnabas has got a distinctive spirit. Perhaps it's talking about that. Whatever it is, the idea is that the entire church, every local church, is under the authority and the protection of, of the Jesus we're reading about in this passage. And friends, as you and I become increasingly aware of the power of evil in our world, there are daily reminders, and as you and I feel the pressure to go low profile with our faith in certain contexts and to compromise with the culture, we need to know that Jesus Christ rules. He rules over us. He rules over the future. He rules over death. Jesus Christ is also the the gracious one who, for us, stooped to the cross and who stoops to each one of us personally. And he's the divine one in whom all the glories of God dwell in bodily form and he's eternal. May we see him clearly. May we trust him totally and may we love him dearly. Above all, may we fall before him in worship. Let's have a moment of quiet. I'm not going to pray. I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a personal response in your heart to the message and the picture of Jesus. And at the end I will say, Lord, in your mercy, will you please say, hear my prayer.
Lord, in your mercy, hear my prayer.